There's a story of a book signing by the poet Mary Oliver. The woman Kathleen Fisher, who is a theology professor, watched as Mary Oliver smiled and acknowledged each person proffering a volume for her to sign. The woman in line just ahead of Kathleen Fisher was alone. She looked serious and self-contained, slightly hunched over, unremarkable in her dress and her demeanor, easily overlooked. She spoke to no one, and when her turn came, she stepped up to the table and bent forward to say something to the poet, who was barely visible among the stacks of books. And then Mary Oliver, the poet, put down her pen and leaned forward, taking the woman's hand, looking intently as she spoke. The woman spoke and Oliver listened for what seemed like a long time compared to the usual exchange of over an autograph. And she, as she moved away from the table, the woman appeared lighter, softer, as if a burden had been lifted. The woman telling the story, Kathleen Fisher, writes, I have no idea what passed between them, but it was clear that the woman had been heard. It was a moment of exquisite, unforgettable kindness. The closing words of Mary Oliver's essay upstream are, attention is the beginning of devotion. Attention is the beginning of devotion. And what is devotion? I ask you, but love. Love so vast in its meaning and definition and aspects, attention is the beginning of a great and fierce love. I invite you for a moment to look at your hand or your hands. Look at its smoothless smoothness or its wrinkles. Look at the crevices, the veins, the lines. Move it around if you like. Make a fist and open it. What does it feel like to run one hand over the other? Is it cool or warm? We don't have 20 minutes to observe right now, but I invite you to take 20 minutes to do this sometime. To see takes time. The practice of paying attention takes time. Like having a friend takes time. What is it that you pay attention to? Think about that. That's your attention and your time. Is it those things that feed our illusion that life is manageable? Or those things that remind us that we are not gods? If only we could do more faster, then maybe we could be gods. But is that our purpose here? to be God's, to do more faster, to be in awe, to be right-sized. Suge Avery in Alice Walker's book, The Color Purple, says, I think it pisses God off if you walk by the color purple in a field somewhere and don't notice it. Mary Oliver lived this kind of noticing. You know that if you know her poetry at all. But unless you've read about her early life, 
You probably wouldn't know that she grew up in a household of people whose behavior she says she did not understand. She makes little mention of her mother and reveals her father to be a brooding loveless force, abusive and neglectful. In her essay, Staying Alive, she writes that one day he took her ice skating and then forgot her and went home. Hours later, someone found her wandering alone across the ice and took her to the home of a kind young woman who phoned Oliver's parents to say where she was. Her father eventually went back to get her. He had simply, he said, forgotten that she existed. She rarely referenced her childhood pain, once saying hers was a dark and broken house. She writes instead about the paths of her escape and her salvation, books and nature. I saved my own life by finding a place that wasn't in that house. She describes how she found writers and books and skipped school to read and be in nature. I stood willingly and gladly in the character of everything, other people, trees, clouds, and this is what I learned, that the world's otherness is antidote to confusion, that standing within this otherness, the beauty and the mystery of the world out in the field or deep inside books can redignify the worst stung heart. can re-dignify the worst stung heart. Did the woman who was speaking with Oliver that day have a weary heart? As the woman spoke, Oliver grasped her hands, looked into her face and received her words with a kindly intensity. She attended to her warmly and generously, undistracted by the many people still waiting in line. Real attention, says Oliver. Real attention needs empathy. Real attention needs empathy. Attention without feeling is just a report. The great black oak, she writes, recognized and responded to my presence and to my mood. They begin to offer, or I begin to feel them offer, their serene greeting. It was like a quick change of temperature a warm and comfortable flush, yet palpable. The ferns and Dutchman's riches growing beside the streams presented their delicate beauty as a gift without expectation. The just hatched geese wobbling in the pond shallows, unaware of the turtles eyeing their next meal, cautioned her about life's awful and wondrous cycles. What does it mean? to say the words that the earth is so beautiful. And what shall I do about it? What is the gift that I should bring to the world? What is the life that I should live? Robin Wall Kimmerer in Braiding Sweetgrass writes that knowing you love the earth changes you. It activates you to defend and protect and celebrate. But when you feel that the earth loves you in return, that feeling transforms the relationship from a one-way street into a sacred bond. 
Attention is the beginning of devotion. The journey of discovering what the gift is that we bring to this world, the life we should live, how we maintain that sacred bond. Paying attention is one of the rituals that nourishes reverence in a human life. Paying attention, taking care, respecting things that can kill you, making the passage from fear to awe. This is reverence. According to the classical philosopher Paul Woodruff, reverence is the virtue that keeps people from trying to act like gods. True reverence cannot be for anything that human beings can make or manage by ourselves. Reverence is the recognition of something greater than us, something that's beyond human creation or control that transcends full human understanding. Barbara Brown Taylor writes, the exercise of reverence generally includes knowing your rank in the overall scheme of things. Remember that movie Men in Black? There's a cat near the end. I mean, it's all through the movie, but it's been present right through the movie. And it has at the very end of the movie, it, the camera zooms in on the orb that the cat wears on its collar. And we can see in that orb the galaxy that they've been, all been talking about throughout the movie. It's contained in this orb around the cat's neck. This small, the size of a small walnut or hazelnut maybe, all manner of life is contained in that small space. So much is larger than we are. And we are larger than so many things. We do not know what universes or universes exist within an inch of space. Reverence is the recognition of those things that transcend full human understanding. Our minds, for some of us, when hearing that, may go to God, however that gets defined for you. But also think about birth, death, sex, nature, truth, justice, wisdom. Reverence stands in awe of something, something that dwarfs the self, that allows human beings to sense the full extent of our limits so that we can begin to see one another more reverently as well. Paul Woodruff again, an irreverent soul who is unable to feel awe in the presence of things higher than the self is also unable to feel respect in the presence of lower things that it sees as lower than itself. So what does this mean in real time? Well, it raises questions, doesn't it, about leaders, especially religious leaders, and I think political and civic leaders who cite reverence for what is good as their warrant for proclaiming whole populations of people evil. Reverence takes all kinds of forms, whatever awakens awe in us and reminds us of our true size. Nature is a good place to start. It's full of things bigger than us, but it's also full of things that are smaller than us. Reverence for creation comes fairly easily for most people. Reverence for other people presents more of a challenge, right? Especially if those lives happen to impinge on our own. 
It's easier to love humankind than it is to love particular humans. I have a friend who will often say, people, they're everywhere. <laughs> we are. Every one of us is dealing with something. When we truly pay attention to others, when we hear their stories, or even if we just imagine or consider for a moment that they're dealing with something the same way that we are, we may experience the sudden onset of reverence. In these moments, we're giving ourselves entirely to what is right in front of us, and what is right in front of us is returning the favor so that reverence is all but unavoidable. It often requires looking twice, not just taking something or someone's as we perceive at first glance, but intentionally looking deeper, looking beyond, waiting for their sacred story. Simone Weil and Barbara Brown Taylor write that human beings have a hard time regarding anything beautiful without wanting to devour it. Indeed, the child of a friend of mine so wanted to be a vegetarian, but cried out, I love pigs, but I love bacon more. <laughs> That's it, right? Once years ago, I spent a weekend at a drumming retreat in Charlestown, West Virginia. I made a friend there. We took most of our meals together, laughed and talked easily. The retreat was on a farm that raised cows, among other things. And one of the calves was born without hope of um, surviving for very long. And so that calf was chosen as the main dish, the protein. Words fail me. I don't know what to call it, but the calf was killed. A fire was built and the calf was roasted there all day for all to see as we, mo we moved around the campsites and the eating area all day. And some of the drummers, the true drum drummers, not not just the ones like me who thought it would be a good idea to go on a drumming retreat, but the drummers who decided, they decided to honor the life of this calf and the sacrifice of its life for our food by drumming to it. And they did. All day, they sat encircling this fire pit and drumming to this calf. I was already a vegetarian, but when dinner came, my meat eater friend put some of the meat on her plate not so much really, but, but some. She ate one bite, but she couldn't swallow it and she couldn't eat any more of it. And several months later, I got a note from her filled with life updates. And at the end she wrote, by the way, I still haven't eaten meat. <clears throat> Where I grew up in Chatham County, chickens are a big industry. You thought that prelude was for naught and just fun, didn't you? <laughs> You can't always see the long metal chicken houses from the road as you're driving, but they're there. And if you Google Earth it, you can see them. And there's never just one. There are several of those long houses. I mean, they're long. And they're usually open on the sides, maybe with screens. They may have improved on that now. Um, when I was younger, they had big round lamps that were strung from the ceiling of the house all across um, and all along in rows. The little yellow chicks arrive and they huddle under close with the other chicks under those lamps all bunched in and chirping together. And then they, those grow into the white chickens that 
you've seen hundreds of them, thousands of them that we eat. In deep Chatham County, you know when they're grown because you hear the trucks at night. If you, at night, you look out the window, you know by the lights and the size and the shape what those trucks are and by the sound, the noise that they make as they go by really fast, always at night. There are a few folks who go into the chicken houses to catch the chicken, they put them in the crates. The crates, um, when I was growing up anyway, were made of wood with round dowels spaced out in, uh, wooden rectangular, in a wooden rectangular frame. It's about three feet by two feet, about 10 inches high. There's a door on top that secures to keep them in. The specs say they hold four to seven chicken, adult chickens, but I can tell you that there are at least 10, maybe 13 to a crate. Crate upon crate upon crate, five crates wide on the backs of these trucks, 10 crates high maybe, and who knows how many deep, all filled with the live chickens. I know because while I may not see it happen at night, I know what it's like to be behind one in a car during the day. Alice Walker has an essay titled, Why Did the Balinese Chicken Cross the Road? And her answer is, to get us both to the other side. You may think with this sermon that I'm trying to get you to become a vegetarian, but I'm not. I'm not trying to get you to stop eating meat altogether or feel bad about the meat that you do eat. What each of us eats is a personal decision, and some of us can't eat other things in place of meat. Our bodies don't allow it. What I am inviting you to is to pay attention, to understand where our food comes from, and to eat it with unprecedented reverence. To eat it with unprecedented reverence, just like those drummers with the calf. Even the vegetables deserve a second look, a moment of appreciation and acknowledgement, not just for the vegetables or the animals alone, but for our, our, for our own selves. That kind of appreciation and connection and attention and awareness changes us. It makes us more reverent of life. It makes us more grateful and honestly, it makes us less fearful. We can stop being afraid of life and afraid of pain and move into awe and mystery and wonder, while at the same time holding the all of life. Barbara Brown Taylor reminds us that anything can become a sacrament, by which we mean an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual connection. an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual connection. If we're paying to recognize where our food comes from, to not take it for granted is just the beginning. If we're paying attention, anything can become a sacrament. Think about your clothes, your car, public transit, the flowers you plant in your garden, paper from trees, the people on a train, those that are tossing your apples and bruising them into that grocery bag. Well, it can be a painful awareness. Taylor writes, it weaves us into the web of cause and effect, reminding us of our place in the overall scheme of things. I know, I'd rather not think about it too much. 
how many paper towels I use and where they come from. As painful as reverence can sometimes be, it can also heal because we're not in denial and we know our place in the world. Watching the stars on a clear night, sitting on the edge of a canyon in Sedona or being on a lake, holding a baby, finding a dragonfly on your front porch or watching a spider weave a web or a poet hold a hand. The practice of paying attention is as simple as looking twice at people, at things that you might just as easily ignore. To see takes time, like having a friend takes time. In those times when we are weary with life, perhaps paying attention, looking twice, is one way into a different way of life full of treasure when we're willing to pay attention to exactly where we are. Perhaps in the looking twice, in this different way of life, we experience a deeper understanding of the meaning of life. Not 42, but love. Love revealed to us, love revealed in us. Every bit of it worth looking twice. Every bit of it to recognize, as Walt Whitman said, every inch of space is a miracle. May we transcend and choose connection. May we recognize that everything is holy.